Chapter 4 Europe in the Middle Ages by Ierna Lifford Plunkett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Constantine the Great. Constantine the Great was born at a time when the empire was divided up between different emperors. His father, Constantius Chlorus, ruled over Spain, Gaul, and Britain. And when he died at York in AD 306, Constantine, his eldest son, succeeded to the government of those provinces. The new emperor, who was 32 years old, had been bred in the school of war. He was handsome, brave, and capable, and knew how to make himself popular with the legions under his command without losing his dignity or letting them become undisciplined. When he had reigned a few years, he quarreled with his brother-in-law Maxentius, who was emperor at Rome, and determined to cross the Alps and drive him from his throne. The task was difficult, for the Roman army, consisting of picked Praetorian guards and regiments of Sicilians, Moors, and Carthaginians, was quite four times as large as the invading forces. Yet Constantine, once he had made his decision, did not hesitate. He knew his rival had little military experience, and that the corruption and luxury of the Roman court had not increased either his energy or valor. It is said also that Constantine believed that the god of the Christians was on his side, for as he prepared for a battle on the plains of Italy against vastly superior forces, he saw before him in the sky a shining cross, and underneath the words, By this, conquer. At once he gave orders that his legions should place on their shields the sign of the cross, and with this same sign as his banner, he advanced to attack. It was completely successful. The Roman army fled in confusion. Maxentius was slain, and Constantine entered the capital almost unopposed. The arch in Rome that now bears his name celebrates this triumph. Constantine was now emperor of the whole of Western Europe, and some years later, after a furious struggle with Licinius, the emperor of the east, he succeeded in uniting all the provinces of the empire under his rule. This was a joyful day for Christians, for though Constantine was not actually baptized until just before his death, yet throughout his reign he showed his sympathy with the Christian religion and did all in his power to help those who professed it. He used his influence to prevent gladiatorial shows, abolished the horrible punishment of crucifixion, and made it easier than ever before for slaves to free themselves. When he could, he avoided pagan rites, though as emperor he still retained the office of Pontifex Maximus, or high priest, and attended services in the temples. His mother, the Empress Helena, to whom he was devoted, was a Christian and one of the old legends describes her pilgrimage to the Holy Land and how she found and brought back with her some wood from the cross on which Christ had been crucified. Soon after Constantine conquered Rome, he published the famous Edict of Milan that allowed liberty of worship to all inhabitants of the empire, whether pagans, Jews, or Christians. The latter were no longer to be treated as criminals, but as citizens with full civil rights, while the places of worship and lands that had been taken from them were to be restored. Later, as Constantine's interest in the Christians deepened, he departed from this impartial attitude and showed them special favors, confiscating some of the treasures of the temples and giving them to the church, 
as well as handing over to it sums of money out of the public revenues. He also tried to free the clergy from taxation and allowed bishops to interfere with the civil law courts. Many of these measures were unwise. For one thing, Christianity, when it was persecuted or placed on a level with other religions, only attracted those who really believed in Christ's teaching. When it received material advantages, on the other hand, the ambitious at once saw a way to royal favor and their own success by professing the new beliefs. A false element was thus introduced into the church. For another thing, few even of the sincere Christians could be trusted not to abuse their privileges. The fourth century did not understand toleration, and those who had suffered persecution were quite ready as a rule to use compulsion in their turn towards men and women who disagreed with them, whether pagans or those of their own faith. Quite early in its history, the church was torn by disputes, since much of its teaching had been handed down by tradition or word of mouth, and this led to disagreement as to what Christ had really said or meant by many of his words. At length, the church decided that it would gather the principal doctrines of the Catholic or universal faith into a form of belief that men could learn and recite. Thus, the Apostles' Creed came into existence. In spite of this definition of the faith, controversy continued. At the beginning of the 4th century, a dispute as to the exact relationship of God the Father to God the Son and the doctrine of the Trinity broke out between Arius, a presbyter of the church in Egypt, and the bishop of Alexandria, the latter declaring that Arius had denied the divinity of Christ. Partisans defended either side, and the quarrel grew so embittered that an appeal was made to the emperor to give his decision. Constantine was reluctant to interfere. They demand my judgment, he said, who myself expect the judgment of Christ. What audacity of madness! When he found, however, that some steps must be taken if there was to be any order in the church at all, he summoned a council to meet at Nicaea and consider the question and thither came bishops and clergy from all parts of the Christian world. The meetings were prolonged and stormy, but the eloquence of a young Egyptian deacon called Athanasius decided the case against Arius, and the latter, refusing to submit to the decrees of the council, was proclaimed a heretic or outlaw. The Orthodox Catholics, that is, the majority of bishops who were present, then drew up a new creed to express their exact views, and this took its name from the council and was called the Nicene Creed. In a revised form, it is still recited in all the Catholic churches of Christendom. Arius, though defeated at the council, succeeded in winning the emperor over to his views, and Constantine tried to persuade the Catholics to receive him back into the church. When this suggestion met with refusal, the emperor, who now believed that he had a right to settle ecclesiastical matters, was so angry that he tried to install Arius in one of the churches of his new city of Constantinople by force of arms. The orthodox bishop promptly closed and barred the gates, and riots ensued that were only ended by the death of Arius himself. The schism, however, continued and it may be claimed that its bitterness had a considerable influence in deciding the future of Europe by raising barriers between races that might otherwise have become friends. 
Arianism, like Orthodox Catholicism, was full of the missionary spirit, and from its priests the half-civilized tribes of Goths and Vandals learned the new faith. A Gothic bishop was present at the Council of Nicaea, while another, Ulfilas, who had studied Latin, Greek, and Hebrew at Constantinople, afterwards translated a great part of the Bible into his own tongue. This is the first known missionary Bible, and, though the original has disappeared, a copy made about a century later is in the museum at Uppsala, written in Gothic characters in silver and gold on purple vellum. The Goths regarded their Bible with deep awe and carried it with them on their wanderings, consulting it before they went into battle. Like the Vandals, who had also been converted by the Arians, they considered themselves true Christians, but the Orthodox Catholics disliked them as heretics almost more than the pagans. Constantine himself imbibed the spirit of fanaticism, and when he became the champion of Arius, persecuted Athanasius, who had been made bishop of Alexandria, and compelled him to go into exile. Athanasius went to Rome, where it is said that he was at first ridiculed because he was accompanied by two Egyptian monks in hoods and cowls. Western Europe had heard little, as yet, of monasticism, though the Eastern Church had adopted it for some time. To the early Christians, with their high ideals, the world around them seemed a wicked place in which it was difficult for them to lead a Christ-like life. They thought by withdrawing from an atmosphere of brutality and material pleasure, and by giving themselves up to fasting and prayer, they would be able more easily to fix their minds on God, and so fit themselves for heaven. Sometimes they would go to desert places and live as hermits in caves, perhaps without talking to a living person for months or even years. Others who could not face such loneliness would join a community of monks, dwelling together under special rules of discipline. At fixed hours of the day and night they would recite the services of the church, and in between whiles they would work or pray and study the scriptures. Many of the austerities they practiced sound to us absurd, for it is hard to feel in sympathy with a Simon Stylites, who spent the best days of his manhood crouched on a high pillar at the mercy of sun, wind, and rain, until his limbs stiffened and withered away. Yet the hermits and monks were an arresting witness to Christianity in an age that had not fully realized what Christ's teaching meant. He that will serve me, let him take up his cross and follow me. This ideal of sacrifice was brought home for the first time to hundreds of thoughtless men and women when they saw someone whom they knew give up his worldly prospects and the joy of a home and children in order to lead a life of perpetual discomfort until death should come to him as a blessing and not a curse. The majority of the leading clergy in the early church, the fathers of the church, as they are usually called, were monks. Two of them, St. Gregory and St. Basil, studied together at the University of Athens in the 4th century. St. Basil founded a community of monks in Asia Minor, where his reputation for holiness soon drew together a large number of disciples. He did not try to win them by fair words or the promises of ease and comfort, for his monks were allowed little to eat and spent their days in prayer and manual labor of the hardest kind. 
the arians who hated saint basil as an orthodox catholic once threatened that they would confiscate his belongings torture him and put him to death my soul wealth is a ragged cloak and some books replied the hermit calmly my days on earth are but a pilgrimage and my body is so feeble that it will expire at the first torment death will be a relief it came when he was only fifty but not at the hands of his enemies for he died exhausted by the penances and privations of his customary life he left many letters and theological works that throw light on the religious questions of his day st gregory had lived for a time with st basil and his monks in asia minor but was not strong enough to submit to the same harsh discipline indeed he declared that but for the kindness of st basil's mother he would have died of starvation afterwards he returned home and was ordained a priest he was a gentler type of man than st basil a poet of no little merit and an eloquent preacher yet another of the catholic fathers of the church was st ambrose bishop of milan he was elected to the see against his own will by the people of the town who respected him because he was strong and fearless st ambrose did not hesitate to use the wealth of the church even melting down some of the altar vessels to ransom christians who had been carried away captive during one of the barbarian invasions the church he declared possesses gold and silver not to hoard but to spend on the welfare and happiness of men the impetuosity and vigor that made him a born leader he also employed to express his intolerance of those who disagreed with him when some christians in milan burned a jewish synagogue and the emperor theodosius ordered them to rebuild it st ambrose advised them not to do so i myself he said would have burned the synagogue what has been done is but a trifling retaliation for acts of plunder and destruction committed by jews and heretics against the catholics this was not the spirit of the founder of christianity it was too often the spirit of the medieval church a man of even greater influence than st ambrose of milan was st jerome a monk of the fifth century who is chiefly remembered today because of his latin translation of the bible the vulgate as it is called that is still a recognized edition of the roman catholic church st jerome was born in italy but in his extreme asceticism he followed the practices of the eastern rather than the western church as a youth he had led a wild life but suddenly repenting he disappeared to live as a hermit in the desert starving and mortifying himself so strongly did he believe that this was the only road to heaven that when he went to rome he preached continually in favor of celibacy urging men and women not to marry as if marriage had been a sin he was afraid that if they became happy and contented in their home life they would forget god many of the leading families and especially their women came under saint jerome's influence but such exaggerated views could never be really popular and instead of being chosen bishop of rome as he had expected he was forced by the many enemies he had aroused to leave town and return once more to the desert of his sincerity there can be little doubt but his outlook on life was warped because like so many good and earnest contemporary christians he believed that human nature and this earth were entirely bad 
and that only by the suppression of any enjoyment in them could the soul obtain salvation several centuries were to pass before saint francis of assisi taught his fellow men the beauty and value of what is human constantinople the polis or city of constantine had been a greek colony under the name of byzantium long before rome existed built on the headland of the golden horn its walls were lapped by an inland sea whose depth and smoothness made it a splendid harbor from the rougher waters of the mediterranean almost impregnable in its fortifications it frowned on asia across the narrow straits of the hellespont and completely commanded the entrance to the black sea with its rich ports markets then as now for the corn and grain of southern russia constantine when he decided that byzantium should be his capital was well aware of these advantages he had been born in the balkans had spent a great part of his life as a soldier in asia had assumed the imperial crown in britain and ruled gaul as his first kingdom this medley of experience left little place in his heart for italy and the name of rome had no power to stir his blood rome to him was a corrupt town and one of the outlying limbs of his empire it had no harbor nor special military value on land while the alps were a barrier preventing news from passing quickly to and fro byzantium on the other hand near the mouth of the danube was easy of access and yet could be rendered almost impregnable to his foes it had the great military advantage also of serving as an admirable headquarters for keeping watch over the northern frontier and an outlook towards the east the walls of the original town could not embrace the emperor's ambitions and he himself wand in hand designed the boundaries his court following him gasped with dismay it is enough they urged no imperial city was ever so great before i shall go on replied constantine until he the invisible guide who marches before me thinks fit to stop not until the seven hills outside byzantium were enclosed within his circuit was the emperor satisfied and then the great work of building began and the white marble of forum and baths of palaces and colonnades arose to adorn the constantinople that has ever since this time played so large a part in the history of europe in the new marketplace just beyond the original walls was placed the golden milestone a marble column within a small temple bearing the proud inscription that here was the central point of the world inside were statues of constantine and queen helena his mother while rome herself and the cities of greece were robbed of their masterpieces of sculpture to embellish the buildings of the new capital in may a d three thirty constantinople was solemnly consecrated and the empire kept high festival in honor of an event that few of the revelers recognized would alter the whole course of her destiny the new capital through her splendid strategic position was to preserve the imperial throne with one short lapse for more than a thousand years but this advantage was obtained at the expense of rome and the complete severance of the interests of the empire in the east and west the romans had never loved the greeks even when they most admired their art and subtle intellect and now in the fourth century this persistent distrust was intensified when greece usurped the glory that had been her conquerors 
in the absence of an emperor and of many high officials who had gone to swell the triumph of his new court rome set up another idol the symbols of material glory might vanish but the christian faith had supplied men with fresh ideals through the teaching of the apostles and their representatives the bishops roman bishops claimed that the gift of grace they received at their consecration had been passed down to them by the successive laying on of hands from saint peter himself thou art peter and on this rock i will build my church and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven these words of christ seem to grant his apostle complete authority over the souls of men and christians at rome began to ask if the power of saint peter to bind and loose had not been handed down to his successors if so il papa that is their father the pope was undoubtedly the first bishop in christendom for on no other apostle had christ bestowed a like authority it must not be imagined that this reasoning came like a flash of inspiration or was willingly received by all christians many generations of popes from the days of st peter onwards were regarded merely as bishops of rome that is as overseers of the church in the chief city of the empire they were loved and esteemed by their flock not on account of special divine authority but because they stood neither for self-interest nor for faction but for principles of justice mercy and brotherhood had a roman been robbed by a fellow-citizen were there a plague or famine was the city threatened by enemies without her walls it was to her bishop rome turned demanding help and protection afterwards it was only natural that when the one power that could and did afford these things when emperors and senators were far away should in time take the emperor's place and that the pope should appear to rome and gradually as we shall see to western europe god's very viceroy on earth to the church in greece egypt and asia minor he never assumed this halo of glory byzantium the great constantinople was the pivot on which the eastern world turned and the bishop of rome with his tradition of saint peter made no authoritative appeal thus far back in the fourth century the cleft had already opened between the churches of the east and west that was to widen into a veritable chasm constantine the great died in 337 and if greatness be measured by achievement he well deserves his title where men of higher genius and originality had failed he had succeeded beating down with calm perseverance every object that threatened his ambitions until at last the christian ruler of a united empire feared and respected by subjects and enemies alike he passed to his rest end of chapter four